Welcome to the Cartoonist Kayfabe Courtroom. My name is Ed Piscor. I'm Jim Rugg. And we're going to be continuing the Marv Wolfman testimony in a court of law as to who is the proper owner of uh, Blade the Vampire Slayer, Deacon Frost, and a bunch of other characters from uh, Tomb of Dracula. But before we get into things, I do want to invite everybody to like, follow, and subscribe to uh, the YouTube channel. Uh, when you subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel, that mitigates what we call the Kayfabe effect around these parts. And uh, what that is, is whenever we talk about certain books, uh, sometimes they're on people's wish lists. And if you uh, get delivered the videos before everybody else, it gives you first dibs on the available copies of certain things that are on eBay, Amazon, at your local comic shop, because they do disappear by about 6 o'clock that, that evening. And if you watch these videos toward the end, that gooses the algorithm and pushes our video content out to other uh, YouTube-watching comic book fans. That helps the channel out in a big way, and we really appreciate it. But, uh, Jimmy, we're here today man we got our we got our sunday best on man because we're we're in court today <laughs> continuing the testimony of marvel wolfman who was uh editor-in-chief at marvel for a certain point was a de facto you know it, it, there was a weird name for what his editor editor-in-chief status was at dc you know senior editor something like that longtime writer in comics created uh blade and other characters just kind of bookended it in in the uh, Tomb of Dracula series. And now there's Wesley Snipe movies, several of them. The second one, freaking rules, the Guillermo del Toro joint? Yes. Excellent. One of the early, uh, I feel like one of the early waves of these Marvel superhero movies successes. Yeah. So uh, where we left off, uh, we're getting into Wolfman's editor-in-chief status. Uh, the way we've been playing the game is that uh, you, Jimmy, are the voice of everybody who is not Marv Wolfman. So this is prosecuting attorneys, defense attorneys, and every now and then, the judge, has the, uh, the Honorable Jim Rugg, has to chime That's in. That's right. And Make a ruling. Yes. <laughs> uh, without further ado, Jimmy, if, if there's nothing more to say, we're using uh, a transcription from uh, Comics Journal 236. I uh, want to thank the Kayfabe audience for sending copies of this in to us. And if you have other de depositions or testimonies, send those our way, man, because this is a this is an education that uh, I would have never expected. You know, like it's not a textbook. Of course, if you when you're bound by perjury laws and stuff like that, you're going to give uh, put your best foot forward. And uh, just not to bury the lead, I see in the middle column here, I see the name John Byrne. So I think I think we're going to have a spicy, fun issue. Uh, yeah, I'll say. This or, is uh, uh, so, some of the best interviews uh, in, in <laughs> comics are these sworn testimonies. That's well said, man. Cartoonist Kayfabe is brought to you by the comic books that Ed Piscor and I make. Available now in your local comic shops or online wherever you buy comics and books is Red Room, Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit. Season 1, the Antisocial Network, available as a collected trade paperback. Season 2, Trigger Warnings. Issue 1 is now out. Issue 2 coming soon, if not already out whenever you see this video. Banned in 26 countries, banned in seven comic shops, but they can still order them for you. So be sure and ask for it by name. And the rest of Ed's bibliography available still in print, WYSIWYG Portrait of a Serial Hacker, X-Men Grand Design, three oversized treasury volumes of that, and Hip Hop Family Tree, four oversized treasury volumes of that as well as, well as two box sets. And coming to comic shops in March and April, Hulk Grand Design, a reimagining of the 60-year history of The Incredible Hulk, over 500 comic books, over 10,000 pages condensed into two oversized issues telling the complete story of The Incredible Hulk, and available in several beautiful eye-catching covers, Marcos Martin, Peach Momoko, and cartoonist Kayfabe's own Ed Piscor. And coming in April, Hulk Grand Design Madness, covers by me, Ed McGinnis, and Jeff Darrow. Also available in comic shops and book sellers, Street Angel, Deadliest Girl Alive from Image Comics, A Homeless Ninja on a Skateboard, and The Plain Janes with writer Cecil Castellucci, possibly the first uh, young adult graphic novel here in America. And now back to our regular scheduled programming. All right, you ready to go? Let's do it. All right. Now, when did you become editor-in-chief at Marvel? In 1975-76, someplace in there. And how long were you editor-in-chief at Marvel? About a year. And what were your duties as editor-in-chief? 
Go over all the material, work with the writers, sometimes commission the stories, keep Marvel flowing essentially. As I mentioned, there was a lot of chaos prior to this. A lot of books went uh, reprint. There, there was something called Dreaded Deadline Doom, which meant that a writer did not get a story in and that it, they had to put in a reprint instead, which was incredibly bad for sales. I had to find a way around that, and for the year I was actually editor-in-chief, we didn't run any reprint stories in place of an original, that sort of material. Did you ever instruct any writers or artists that any work they did for Marvel be owned by Marvel during your tenure as editor-in-chief? No. Did Marvel ever instruct you as editor-in-chief to tell writers their work was work for hire and they would own the, that material? No. I never heard those words then. Do you know John Byrne? You mentioned John Byrne. Yes, he's over there now. Uh, off the record, making faces is what we were. We <laughs> oh were, no, it's going to get into it. it oh, like, okay, like, okay. With it, the next couple, of, <laughs> yeah, it, he'll, it'll be on the record. Excellent. All right, back to it. Okay, did you ever tell John Byrne that Marvel owned your materials that you created, your original materials? I read that in his deposition, and I can't believe it because no, I mean why? By the time John was there, I was an editor in chief, and the time he's talking about, uh, I said this. Why would I say anything like that? No. Let me ask you a question. Did John Byrne submit his first story of a Fantastic Four issue to you that he wanted to work on? Yes. John, like a lot of new artists, they work up what's called a spec story. John submitted Fantastic Four as a finished, full-length, I forget how many pages, Fantastic Four story. Uh, I know it was certainly drawn by him. I have to assume it was written by him, but I don't remember at this moment. And did he approach you with his spec story for the Fantastic Four? I don't remember if he personally did it or if he did it through a friend of his. John was living, I think, in Canada at the time, and I don't remember specifically if he showed it to me or a friend showed it to me. Well, he says he talked to you at a cocktail party. That's possible. I don't remember that. I remember seeing the story, and John wanted it to run as an issue of Fantastic Four. Break real quick. Uh, we do have a video uh, from uh, David Allen Craft's uh, Comics Interview magazine, I believe, um, did... Uh, a piece, a big piece with John Byrne, and sort of bookended in that issue is the complete pencil story that they're talking about right here. We have a full video of that, and it's really accomplished, pretty good. That's going to get your work in comics. Back to the game. Now, he was trying to work on that issue. That was his spec to work at Marvel on that issue. Is that right? Yes. Well, it was certainly his spec to want to work for Marvel, and he believed that the story should have been a printed issue of Fantastic Four. Uh, I read it. I looked at it. I thought the art was really good. Not good enough for Fantastic Four at that stage in his career, because there were several reasons. He was a newcomer. His stuff was really good. I always liked John's art. The story I don't recall all that well. It wasn't up to the quality anyway of what Fantastic Four was then, and I don't remember who the writer or the artist were at the time. Uh, it could have been, it could have even been me. I'm not positive. We know that it was Rick Buckler because, uh, as per John Burns' testimony, he said that Rick, Rich Buckler sandbagged him. Right, and, and that testimony we have gone through on the channel. So again, available for people to go back and, and check out if they haven't already. It's a thorough YouTube channel. <laughs> All right, back, back to the trial. But you rejected his script? I rejected it and then okayed him to work on other books because I thought the art, art was really good. And again, not up to the standard Fantastic Four and Spider-Man and Thor, to some degree the Hulk. There were four major books at Marvel, and you had to use what, what I thought were the very top people on those four books. Uh, the work was real good. That's why we gave him other work for, for that issue, uh, but not for Fantastic Four at that time period. Do you think he resents you in attempting to snub him to break into the big time? Fleischer. Objection. Court overruled. He thought it was better than what it was, uh, than what was in there at the time. He wasn't happy. But I thought m my stuff was better uh, than what was going on those days, too. So I don't just think it was up to the Fantastic Four quality, but I certainly thought it was good enough to give him work on a regular basis. Do you know a gentleman by the name of Jim Shooter? Yes. Did you hire him at Marvel? Yes. I needed an assistant editor. My previous assistant editor, who at the time I think was Chris Claremont, left, and I was looking around, and Jim had previously come back into comics, and I liked his writing, and I offered him a job. Did he want to be a line editor at the time? Well, Marvel wasn't constructed at that particular point uh, like that. 
there was an editor-in-chief, and then there were a bunch of assistant editors. It all filtered through the editor-in-chief, and it was handed out to assistants to do the proofreading. He wanted to be... He wanted more power and control over his job. He certainly wanted to be... Dot, dot, dot. Thought of as more than just an assistant, yes. But you prevented that by making him assistant instead of line editor. Well, there was no position uh, to be a line editor. Uh, I wouldn't have been able to put him in that particular point uh, because that didn't exist. He was my assistant. That's what. That's the job he was filling uh, that existed prior to him being there, and I put him in as the assistant. I'd like to mark for identification Exhibit 558, if you could refer to that. Fleischer. Your Honor, at this point, I want to object to this whole exhibit. This is a complaint Mr. Wolfman has nothing to say about it. It's irrelevant to any issue in this case, and it's a sideshow. We only have eight hours apiece, and if we have to submit evidence to respond to every scrap of paper that appears here, we really can't do it in the time we have. Court. Let me hear a couple of questions and get a sense of what's going on. Diliberto. You notice the face page of this complaint says Steve Gerber. Yes, it says Stephen Gerber. He was the writer and creator of Howard the Duck. And what is Howard the Duck? Howard the Duck was a character he created in the pages, I think, of Adventures. It was an intelligent talking duck from another dimension. It was an incredible creation, and later it was turned into a movie produced by George Lucas. Now, do you know when he created that character? In 1974-75, someplace around that area. Was he freelancing at Marvel at that time? Yes. Were you his editor at that time? I was an editor at Marvel at the time. He was not working directly under me at, at that one. I was the editor. After the first two little appearances of Howard, the editor at the time, the editor-in-chief at the time, who was Roy Thomas, really hated Howard the Duck. I mean, he just despised the character, and Steve mentioned that to me. I was editing the black-and-white horror magazines, and I suggested that he do a Howard the Duck for me in the black-and-white magazines. All right. Now, you were aware of this lawsuit previously. Is that correct? Before this lawsuit? Yes. I was very much aware of this lawsuit. Did you, did Steve Gerber or his attorneys ask you to give a deposition in this lawsuit against Marvel? Yes, they did. I gave a deposition sometime in the 80s uh, whenever this was filed. It's hard to tell. It says filed 1980. It could have been 80, 81. Now, during that lawsuit, did Gerber's attorney ask you whether, in your opinion, having been working at Marvel during that time period, whether he owned the rights to that character, Howard the Duck? Fleischer. Objection, Your Honor. It's hearsay. Again, unless there's some offer... Of relevance for this, I really think we're so far afield. I don't think Mr. Wolfman can identify this pleading. I don't think the fact that Mr. Gerber makes allegations in a complaint is evidence in this case. And the court. So far, all he's asking him to do is confirm a prior statement he has made. Dilberto. That's correct, Your Honor. The court. So I will allow it. He asked me the question at the deposition, and I said, in my opinion, Steve Gerber owned the rights to Howard the Duck, and that was back in 1980-81. And what did you base your opinion on? Steve had said that he created it, uh, that he had an understanding that because of that, and because no one had, I guess, taken rights or asked him to sign away rights that he owned it. And since I believe that myself, and a lot of other people did believe it, I assume that that was true. Fleischer. Objection. Move to strike about what other people knew and about what Mr. Gerber knew. Court overruled. Diliberto, do you know if his lawsuit was based on the fact that his Howard the Duck character was used for a film without his consent? I don't know the fool. I don't know all the elements of it. I know that he was complaining about the film because he didn't feel that he had given uh, rights to them for that sort of material uh, for anything other than public publishing. Uh, but I don't know all the different things because I frankly have never read this. I was just asked questions and tooled when they asked me uh, about it at the deposition and would I do it? Uh, what did I know about it? And again, that's all I can tell you right now is he was complaining that they didn't have the rights because he had never sold them the rights. Are you aware there was a Howard the Duck movie made at some point in time? Unfortunately, I am aware of it. I'd like to mark for identification Exhibit 531. Is this the writer-slash-editor agreement you had discussed earlier in your testimony? Yes, it is. At the top it says, Agreement dated blank 1976. Was this actually signed in 1977? 
It was signed in 77 because, as I mentioned, my wife was expecting. My daughter was born January 6th of 77, and the contract was there, but it wasn't signed until I got back after my daughter was born in a couple days later. So just early January, maybe by the 10th, I'm sure. Now, this was an agreement between you and Marvel Comics Group. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Was this agreement to ensure steady work on your behalf? Fleischer. Objection. The agreement speaks for itself. Court overruled. Uh, this was to make sure I had the correct number of pages that I wanted from Marvel on a monthly basis. Yes. Now, I'd like to refer you to some language here. The second line says, Marvel shall pay employee on a bi-weekly basis a salary based on $23 per page for each comic, each color comic page of script, plus $50 for the editing of each 17-page color comic strip and the writing of a little page for same. There's a parenthesis. It being understood that employee will edit all scripts by him written by Marvel and accepted by the publisher of Marvel Comics here and after called material. Do you see that language? Fleischer. Objection, Your Honor. Relevance. His understanding comes second to what the words actually say. There's nothing ambiguous about the words. The court. Overruled. I'm sorry? You may answer. It says doing the script and that the and the writing of the letters page. That's what it says, yes? Did you prepare this agreement? No, they did. They being Marvel? I'm sorry, Marvel, yes. Did you have an attorney at the time? No. Did Marvel allow you to consult an attorney about anything in dealing with them? Fleischer, objection, court overruled. No, no, they, they. Did they discourage that? Actively. They did not want... In that year, in that time period, in the 70s, you dealing with lawyers. Was that voice to you in some manner? I had heard about that with Steve Gerber. Referring to paragraph 10 at page 6, the heading, Series and Ideas, it says, If any material delivered here under the part of a series, the idea and the character or characters used therein shall constitute Marvel's exclusive property for all times. Do you see that? Yes. Could you actually, at this point, it's like... Don't you bang the gavel and say, everybody go home? That's a good point. <laughs> that, that does seem pretty cut and dry. <laughs> what was your understanding of that paragraph? Fleischer, objection, court overruled. This had to do with Marvel's characters. Spider-Man, Fantastic Four, those type of characters. Because it was always my understanding that if you're selling something new, it would say that. Uh, if they were buying my characters, it would have said new characters. I would say something to indicate uh, they wanted what you were providing new. Uh, this is to protect Marvel, at least I thought, from my claiming just because I was writing Fantastic Four or Spider-Man or Daredevil or anybody else, no one had claimed to those characters. Did you use Blade or Deacon Frost during the term of this 1977 agreement? No. While you were freelancing at Marvel, did they ever withhold taxes from any payments they made to you? Only when I was assistant uh, editor or the editor. But not when I was under the writing agreement, no. Did they ever pay any payroll taxes on your behalf? Under the writing agree agreement? Uh, not that I'm aware of, certainly. You are referring to the 1977 agreement. You're making a distinction of the payments? Well, the writing was paid differently than editing. In terms of, for instance, when I worked at Marvel up until this agreement, say... You would get a salary check as an editor, an assistant editor, or whatever your title was. This is separate from whatever writing you did at the time. Uh, you would get a freelance writing script for that. Uh, that wasn't a staff or salary position as a writer. The editing was staff salary position. That's why, you know, you would... I was earning, I think, uh, a hundred and a quarter a week when I first started at Marvel, and the writing was all extra. All right. Well, were any withholdings made from your writing check you received and services in connection with writing? No. Were any Social Security taxes being withheld from your writing checks? If there were, I wasn't aware of it. I'm still not aware of it. How about editing checks? Not under this contract. It would have been when I was an editor at the company before this. The company before? Which company? I'm sorry. I'm not sure if you're talking about the writer-editor contract from 77 to 79 or previously when I was assistant editor or an editor-in-chief. That's when payroll taxes were withheld from my editing duties. 
Uh, they weren't withheld as a writer or as an editor on this. The only um, amount of money I got, I think, as an editor was $50, if I'm correct. Yes, $50 for editing. No, no. They didn't take any money out of that at all. Did you become aware of a Dracula film being made that was released in Japan? Yes, in about 81 or 82 uh, it was made. Your Honor, I have a videotape. I'd like to mark it for identification as Exhibit 537. If you'd like to, we can take a few minutes and play it to authenticate what that is. The court, that's fine. I bet the judge was like, I want to see a Japanese Dracula movie. <laughs> An anime fan, fan sitting on the, <laughs> on the bench. Uh, Dilberto, videotape played at this time. I do not want to spend a lot of time on this. Number one, it's in Japanese. I would fast forward until you see the bat. Keep going, keep going. While we're waiting, can you identify what this videotape is? This is, I tended to write, as I say, novel type stories, and I wrote a storyline that was in Tomb of Dracula from about issue 50 to issue 70. And this absolutely adapts my story. Every plot twist, every turn, it abridges it, of course, since it took place over two and a half years, but it's essentially the same. It's the same plotted uh, features, uh, my characters, it features Janus, it features Quincy Harker, it features a number of other characters. I really wish we could get the name of this. I would, I would watch that this week. When did you find out about this video being made? Can we lower it? I found out, uh, I found out about uh, the time almost immediately when it was made in Japan. A friend of mine, who was a model maker for Aurora, had a friend in Japan, and he told us about it. So I came in at that particular point. I wasn't working at Marvel. I was at DC at that point. This is, by the way, the sequence that created Domini, who in this book is the wife of Dracula and the mother of Janus. Two of the characters in your proof of claim. Yes, two of my characters. Just to shorten this up, because we are tight on time here. Anyway, I found out about it, and I went up to Jim Shooter, who was editor-in-chief at the time at Marvel, and complained a bit. Uh, this is Anton Lupeski, another character that I'm claiming, and Jim. I hadn't seen it yet. Uh, I was checking it out because I wanted to make sure it existed. When did you complain to Jim Shooter? Within, before I even, before I even saw it. Uh, so it would have been 81, 82. I wanted to find out if there were if this were true. Jim said that he would go and check it out. I don't believe he did at that moment. I left. I spoke to him again sometime afterwards. It could have been a day. It could have been a week. It could have been two weeks. Did Mr. Shooter deny that the film existed? Yes. He said that the film did not exist. He went upstairs to whomever, and he was told that this film did not exist. But in the meantime, from that point, from that point that I first got in there, uh, went in there to complain about this to the point that I spoke with Jim. I said, I got a videotape of the film and I said, uh, it exists. And Jim looked at it and took it upstairs and maybe he didn't take it, but he went upstairs again. And sometime later he came back down and said that he was told, well, yes, it exists, but it made no money. So don't expect anything. Did you contemplate filing a lawsuit at that time for the unauthorized use of your characters? Fleischer, objection, what he contemplated. The court. Overruled. Diliberto, you may answer. Oh, I'm not sure what I contemplated. I was angry that they had taken my characters. They had taken my story. Fleischer. Moved to strike. He testified he didn't know. Excuse me. I haven't finished. Diliberto. Do you know what you thought, or do you not know what you thought? I was coming to that point, please. We are tight on time. I'm sorry. Move it along. <laughs> I gave some thought to it, and then when... This is too expensive. I was I was at DC. I was trying to do my work. It would have been so expensive. I don't like confronting. It took an awful lot uh, before I started this thing. So I just decided not to because, frankly, I didn't want to put myself through it. And having put myself through it now, I've made the right decision. Uh, but I was angry and I did complain. Referring to the video, there's Dracula. I don't know if anything else needs to be shown. This is definitely the film. I'd like to mark for identification exhibits 532, 533, and 534. I will have you identify what those publications are. They have the title Tomb of Dracula. Yes. In the Tomb of Dracula book, it ended in 1979. And as I said, uh, I didn't do any more work for Marvel. Now, these are published under the Epic line of comics. Yes. What is the Epic line of comics? Uh, 
I will come to that in a second. In 1991, they did. They asked me to work on four issues, a four-issue series for Epic. And was Epic a Marvel publication? Epic was a Marvel imprint, more adult, uh, outside of the regular venue of the Marvel books. Epic was a company, or a division of Marvel, I guess. I don't know what it would actually be called legally. It had more creator, was more creator-friendly, friend, certainly. Uh, you could own the material that uh, completely was in there, which meant you can own the title, you can own the artwork, you can own every element of it uh, instead of just the characters. Did you sign vouchers in connection with this 1991 Tomb of Dracula series? I believe those may have been uh, the very first vouchers I ever signed at Marvel. And I'd like to mark for identification Exhibit 536. Now these are vouchers that have at the top a letter with Fish and Richardson, another high-priced New York law firm representing Marvel. What do these... These are vouchers you sign in connection with the Tomb of Dracula 1991 comic book? Yes, yes. Do you notice how they say script under type of work? Yes. Uh, what they were buying here, I mean, what they themselves were saying was the stuff that you were selling to them was penciling, script, inking, etc. Whatever the etc. you'd fill you'd fill that in. Uh, I filled in plot and it was and when it was plot or sometimes the editor filled in plot. The editor was Terry Kavanaugh. I filled in script uh, when I did the script. This is all they were buying. That's all they asked for. Script or plot? Yes. They were not buying the characters, original characters that you created. No, otherwise it would have said, again, original characters or creation. Fleischer, objection, moved to strike, court overruled, Diliberto. I guess I was asking, were they buying the original characters you created through these vouchers? No, by their own words here, they were only buying either penciling, script, inking, etc. And if you're willing to sell an etc., uh, you would fill that in. Do you recall when you uh, do you recall any legend language on the back of these invoices? No, I don't. When did you learn the Mar that Marvel was in bankruptcy? Sometime prior to this, probably in the late nineties, ninety six. Uh, they sent out paperwork. I could be wrong on that exact date. They sent out paperwork to everybody who had worked there, asking if you had any proof of claims, if you had anything that you were claiming that you felt was yours, and they were, and that they were entering into bankruptcy. I read over the paperwork and filled it out as best I could understand it. And you've listed the two pages following the proof of claim of your characters that you created both before your and after your freelancing period at Marvel? Yes, this was. I filled out all the characters that I had created, yes. Did the Marvel publications in which your characters listed in the proof of claim appear list you as the writer of those stories? Oh, okay, yes. Did they ever list you as the creator? On Skull the Slayer 1, I was listed as the creator, and I guess on Nova, uh, it said conceived. Why did you file the proof of claim? In the fan trades, which is, I guess, the industry-type newsletters or newspapers that come out every week talking about comics, they were talking about the fact that, I believe his name was Carl Icahn, uh, was taking over Marvel, and the rumor... The rumors that were going around at that particular time were that Carl Icahn was going to divest all the characters. He was going to sell off characters there because he'd get more money or something. I don't fully understand it. What I understood was that the idea was that he was going to come in, get rid of all the different characters, selling them all to different places wherever he could. And while my characters were at Marvel, uh, they were at one place. They, that was very simple. I could track it. I, I knew where they were. Everything was fine. Marvel hadn't been doing anything except the Tomb of Dracula movie that was outside of what I had agreed with them to do, namely comic books. If they started to be sold off to 50 places, all the characters were starting to be sold off even five places, eight places. I could envision at that particular time trying to reclaim all my characters from God knows how many places, so the paperwork was there. They sent it to me. I wanted to make sure that couldn't happen, and I filed. Had you known about the Blade movie when you filed this proof of claim in January of 1997? No, I didn't find out about it until, I think, March, when it was announced in the trades. That's variety, uh, things like that. You know, it was mentioned in there. No, the comments that I had heard uh, after this was all filed a year or so later was that this was all due to the Blade movie, that I was trying to make money on a, a character. Uh, this was filed. There was no money involved with this when I filed it. Uh, 
I had no idea that there was going to be a Blade film at that particular point. It was before. Before I had heard of it, and before any of my friends had heard of it, because they would have told me. I was filing to get back my characters, and to make sure that they were all with me rather than all over the world or wherever they may have wound up. Now there came a point when you mentioned March of 1997 approximately, you learned about the Blade movie through a trade? Yes, through Variety. You had an attorney write a cease and desist letter on your behalf? Well, after having gone through the situation with the Tomb of Dracula movie, where I went up, complained, I was lied to by whoever told Mr. Shoot or Jim that it didn't exist. Uh, I just was not going to let that happen again. It's one of the those fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me type situations. Uh, this, this time, I wasn't going to put up with that. Uh, they had done this once. They weren't going to do it a second time, and I filed. Let me refer to some exhibits. I'd like to mark for identification exhibits 538 through 546. Exhibit 538 is a letter from an attorney named Richard Rosen. Let me find it first, please. Yes, 538 was a letter that, written by Richard Rosen, was my attorney. Actually, the attorney of Wolf Mill Entertainment, which is partially my company. He wrote that for me. That's dated April 2nd, 1997, and it's addressed to Robert Shea at New Line Cinema? Yes. Did you, have, did you have your attorney write this letter approximately a month after you learned about the New Line Blade movie being made? No. Actually, I contacted him a lot sooner. The problem with Rick was that he had just become a producer of a Broadway show featuring Renee Taylor and Joseph Bologna in Manhattan. He was no longer in New York. Uh, I mean, in L.A., where I lived. And it took him a while to do that. I'd like to refer to paragraph 3, which states that demand is hereby made that New Line immediately cease and desist from taking any further steps to exploit these characters unless and until a licensing agreement has been entered into between the parties. End quote of that paragraph. The parties he's referring to in this are Blade and Deacon Frost. Is that correct? Yes, those were the characters uh, that were in the movie. And again, after Tomb of Dracula, I was not going to rely on lies, I guess. This letter was sent out, to your knowledge? It was sent out. There was no response whatsoever. Fleischer. Objection. Move to strike the testimony. We don't know whether it was sent or not, Your Honor. It was sent. The court overruled. Diliberto. All right. Exhibit 539 appears to be a letter from you to Joseph Calamari. Joey Squid, as uh, Joe Quesada called him. Uh, yes, Mr. Calamari was the president of Marvel Comics. Uh, he may have had a different title, but I believe it was that. Do you know if he's still at Marvel right now? I don't believe so. Was he fired recently? I believe I heard that, uh, but then a lot of Marvel pre presidents have been fired recently. One as recently as two weeks ago. It's a revolving door up there. And why did you write this letter to Mr. Calamari at Marvel? I hadn't heard anything from New Line at all. Uh, in the meantime, I was not. I was getting very busy with what I was doing with Wolf Mill. Uh, we had co-created my business partner and television animation show uh, called Pocket Dragon Adventures, and we were in the process of selling it. We were in the process of trying to get everything together to make sure we could do this. By the way, it's a show that we co-own, which is, I gather, very unusual with that company, uh, and, I just, and I just didn't have a lot of time to pursue. Finally, the time came. I kept reading uh, a little bit more, and I called a friend of mine at DC Comics and said, what should I do? I'm not happy. I want to stop this. I don't like this idea. Uh, they're doing this without my permission. He said, if I go into Joe Calamari with all guns blazing, Marvel will never uh, listen to me. He gave me the advice of pulling back, of talking about trying to edge into discussions. Just try very softly, which is not my inclination after the Tomb of Dracula movie and after having been rebuked on the letter. And I listened to him, uh, and I listened to him and wrote about as mild and as laid back a letter as I was capable of doing, saying sort of, quote, anything, please. Let's see if we could talk. Uh, I just wanted to establish that this is what I wanted, end quote. Now your April 1997 letter from Robert Shea, Exhibit 538, mentioned that you were demanding a license agreement from New Line? Yes, yes. At page two of your letter, Exhibit 539, you mention a percentage. Was this still a license you were trying to create at this time with New Line? Of course. Obviously, 
uh, I wasn't pulling back on what I wanted. The person at DC, by the way, is Paul Levitz, who's the president of DC. I've known him since he was 12 years old, and he's the person I go to uh, very often for advice on this sort of stuff. He's really sharp with business, and Paul said, quote, Don't go in with guns blazing, just pull back, end quote. No, I was not going to change what I wanted, but I was trying to ease in. Marvel was giving percentages uh, at that particular time. I think they they still may uh, with new creations and such. This is not the policy, not a policy they did not have. DC has had it a lot longer, but Marvel has had it. Uh, I was just trying to write something that was calm, you know, just that they weren't interested in that either even though there was their current policy. Moving on to Exhibit 541, was this Mr. Calamari's response to your letter to him? Yes, it was. I received this, I guess, November 13th or November 14th. It was like, nice, nice, pat, pat, go away. We don't care. Uh, but please come by my office, which is the last line. Now, Exhibit 542 has a comment handwritten. It says, send copy to M. Wolfman. Did you get a copy of Exhibit 542? Yes, I got a fax from Mr. Uh, Gittleson. He's the president of Marvel Studios, uh, as it says on the stationery. Now, Mr. Gittleson's letter says that we have been approached by Marv Wolfman, the original creator of Blade for Marvel Comics. Marv have asked us for an appropriate credit in the movie. Were you asking just for a credit in the movie? No, I had already asked for first a licensing agreement and percentages. Obviously not. Uh, he had obviously gotten the information from Mr. Calamari, and since Mr. Calamari had already said he wouldn't consider anything, uh, that's the only thing he passed along to Mr. Gittleson. Now, Exhibit 543, we actually have two copies of the same letter, but the second copy says BCC, Marv Wolfman. Did you receive a BCC of Gary Gittleson's letter to Peter Frankfurt? Yes, I did. Uh, he was still waiting to hear. Uh, Gary called me up at one point and said he'd get back to me in about a month, and that was almost a month later. Now, at some point, you come, you came to our law firm. Is that correct? Yes. And referring to Exhibit 544, do you recall seeing this letter that I wrote before it was sent out? Yes. That was on the, the fact that they were ignoring my first uh, attorney's letter. They were ignoring my letter to Mr. Calamari. They were ignoring my trying to make things work between us before we go to any big steps because, again, I can't possibly tell you how horrendous going through this is. I really didn't want to go through this, but they ignored me. They would even do, again, what their standard deal with any of the regular people was and no more. I mean, I kept building the anger, but I was also working on other stuff. So, you know, one day... I'd be angry. One day I'd be writing little comedy dragon stories, so it was very difficult. I'd like to also mark for identification exhibits 547 and 548. Do you recall seeing these copyright applications before they were filed on your behalf? Yes, I do. For the Blade and Deacon Frost characters and stories? Yes. Do you recall seeing a Blade movie poster? At about the time I think Blade came out, yes. And exhibit 549, is that a copy of the Blade movie poster that you saw? Can't be sure if this was the first one I saw, but I've seen this one, yes. I'd like to mark for identification as Exhibit 551, a videotape of the Blade movie, and if I may approach, Your Honor, I'd just like to show some portions of that. Court, all right. Dilberto videotape played at this time. I'm just going to show you the opening scene, and actually, I want to show you the credits also. Okay. Uh, this is Blade's mother. It's pretty gory. Uh, if you don't have a strong stomach, I wouldn't watch it. She's already been bitten by a vampire, and she's giving birth. We don't see that on stage. Was that portion of the film based on your story? That's the origin of Blade. Uh, the mother is bitten by the vampire. She, she has the fangs. She dies. He's born, and he becomes something that's half man, half vampire. Who did the script for this film? David Goyer. Did he talk to you about your story as a basis for creating the script? I spoke to him about a minute or three at some point, and he said he was a big fan of Tomb of Dracula. He had taken uh, a lot, not only f from the Blade story, but from other parts of Tomb of Dracula, put it in there, and he was hoping I would like it. Now, you were given credit in this film, is that right? Yes. It's in the sequence coming up fairly soon. All right. If I can unpause it, can you read that? Blade and Deacon Frost, characters created for Marvel Comics by Marv Wolfman and Gene Colan. Do you disagree with that credit? Well, as I said, it was created long before I got to Marvel. 
at least months before I got to Marvel, and Gene was the artist for it. He wasn't the creator of it. Do you recall our law, law firm sending letters demanding credit on your behalf for that film? Yes. Was New Line willing to give you credit before you demanded it? Nobody was willing. In fact, they ignored Mr. Gittleson's letter, I believe twice, because he had written a second letter a month after he wrote the first letter and still had not heard about it. I'd like to mark for identification exhibit 606. Could you refer to that, Mr. Wolfman? Court. You might as well turn that off. Dilberto, it gets gory. It gets very gory. Did you find that exhibit? Did you see the demand for credit in that letter? First of all, just for the record, it's a letter written by our law firm to Leopold, Petrich, and Smith, the attorneys representing New Line in this case. Do you see the demand for credit? Let me read that to you. It says, quote, Blade and Deacon Frost characters created by Marv Wolfman, published by Marvel Comics, based upon stories written and created by Marv Wolfman, end quote. In your opinion, is that an accurate credit? Oh, yes. And is the one in the film incorrect, in your opinion? As I just said, yes. Uh, Gene had gotten, it, had gotten it way after I had done the story, and it had been done before I got to Marvel. We've marked for identification Exhibit 603, and what is that? This is the cover of Amazing Adventures 22 featuring War of the Worlds. And at the second page, it lists Don McGregor as the writer? Correct. He was another free, freelance writer up at Marvel. Are you familiar with Mr. McGregor's character, Saber? Wolfman indicates that he is. And do you see where Saber appears in this exhibit? And while you're looking, can you describe what the character is? Saber is a... F and by the way, they spell it wrong here. Saber is a future mercenary-like character, black mustachioed, <laughs> uh, with a big saber, uh, hence the name, set in the future in a world that is pretty much destroyed by its oppressors. And you observed that Exhibit 603 in the Indicia as a... 1973 copyright notice in the name of Marvel? Yes, it was 1973. What is Eclipse Books? Eclipse Books was part of Eclipse Comics. Eclipse is a fairly large publisher for 15 years or so, maybe longer, of comic books and graphic novels, which are large comic books, essentially. Now, you supplied these copies of Saber that are now being published in Eclipse Books to our firm. Is that right? Wolfman agrees. And do you see on the indicia of these selected pages of the Sabre comic book published by Eclipse, they have dates of 1978, 1988, 1982? Yes, the book is a 10th anniversary edition of the graphic novel. They just published, I believe, the 20th anniversary a few months ago. The others are a monthly comic book that Sabre was published at, at Eclipse. It lasted a couple of years. Now, if we look at Exhibit 604, Control Number 905, it looks like it gives a synopsis of eight different issues of Sabre published by Eclipse. Well, this is an ad for the back issues that had been published up to this point. And do you see all of these issues have words to the effect that TM for trademark and copyright 1984 Don McGregor? Uh, that's listed right uh, on the bottom, the copyright Don McGregor. Having reviewed these doc documents, what's your opinion as to the meaning of the indicia showing copyright in the name of Don McGregor for the Sabre copyright? Fleischer, objection, competence. Court overruled. The relevance of this is that Don had done Saber at Marvel in 1973. He appeared in a number of issues. Conjecture? we got to find those. Yes. we got to check that out. Because we have looked at uh, Saber again in another video. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. are thorough, Ed. This is really, this is really shrewd, cool stuff. And, and I definitely have some of these adventure comics with the War of the Worlds, and, and I don't think I've made that connection. I'd love to see if he's called Saber. Yeah. Uh, Don, in 1979, took Saber, moved it into a graphic novel. It was, by the way, the first comic book graphic novel of any significance, and it was heavily publicized. Uh, then ran it for two years, maybe three years. I don't know exactly how long in, in its own comic book. And there was the same character. They took the Martinez out. Am I reading that right? That's what it says. I've no, I don't know that word. Uh, but it's still the same character, uh, just minus the elements that had been in War of the Worlds prior to Don creating Saber. So a couple of things I want to point out there. Yeah. He says, you know, this was um, the first comic book graphic novel of any significance. We've done videos with Warren Bernard tracing kind of the history of the graphic novel even before uh, Will Eisner coins that term. We've looked at Marvel's first, <laughs> first in quotes, right. graphic novel, The Death of Captain Marvel. It's fascinating how many books you could pile up 
that are either claims to be the first graphic novel or way precedes whatever book you want to say claims to be the first graphic novel. It's always the way. Uh, like, uh, success has many fathers or, or something like this, man. Like, when, when I did that first uh, volume of Hip Hop Family Tree, there are no less than three or four people in that book claiming to have created the term hip hop. And I made sure to specifically include that sort of stuff because when you have something that hits, there's a lot of people who want it, want credit for that. It's so interesting because you think of this as history and history based on fact, and it's almost impossible to actually determine <laughs> where was this used first? You, you know, it's, it's a, it's a funny business, but uh, it, it's, it's interesting with graphic novel being so trendy in comics and kind of like, Man, it's, it's coming from a lot of places. History is his story. All right. Uh, back, to the, back to the courtroom. Yes. Now, did you work with Don in 1973 at Marvel? Yes. And was he freelancing also like you were in 1973? Yes, he was. Can you identify Exhibit 530? This is the fifth issue of Total Eclipse, a book I wrote at Eclipse in 1989. And did you contribute a story to this publication? I wrote the story, and in fact, I have the copyright to the story here. The characters, though, uh, were all owned by other creators, and their names are listed here as well. So what does control number page 709 show you about the indicia to, the, to this Eclipse comic book? I think that it shows to me is that you can have a book where one person uh, can own the story, but a lot of other people can own the individual characters. And I think that this is important, certainly in the case of Blade, but it's important with all my characters. Uh, but that's what it's showing. It can be done, and it is done. Mr. Wolfman, have you given many interviews during your career? Oh, that's like asking if I breathe. Yes, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds. Do you recall whether any of those interviews have been accurately reported? I have found that I don't even bother worrying about that anymore because it almost never is. Uh, they'll get some quotes. They won't get others. They'll manufacture some. They won't manufacture others. There's no way. Now, Mr. Fleischer made a reference to some interview that you... It has been called an interview by Mr. Fleischer. I wanted to ask you, did you ever tell someone for Cinema Fantastique magazine that you weren't familiar with vampires? You know, there's no way that could have happened because I was... I published vampire stories when I was a kid. I edited Vampirella magazine. I wrote the vampire story Deathstalker in 1970. I may have indicated that I wasn't... A big fan of some movies of it uh, but I loved vampires itself uh, you know some of it I I preferred uh, to books actually so if that appeared in an article in cinema fantastique would that be an inaccurate statement it would probably be probably be a bad paraphrase that was totally not phrased right you made a reference to the concept of blade came a couple issues later is that an accurate statement no, the concept of putting them into a book came uh, a couple issues later, but it couldn't have come uh, for Tomb of Dracula because at that point, uh, the comics code. The comics code is a, I don't want to say it's a censoring body, but that's essentially what they are. For many, many, many years, no vampires, werewolves, Frankenstein-like monsters, the word horror, the word terror, things like that, were not permitted in any, any comic book. Blade, when I first started to think about it, never could have been inside of a regular comic book because first, vampires weren't approved, and secondly, it was very, very down and dirty. There, this was an industry in the regular comic books, not Warren, which was magazines, but in the regular comic books, they were slowly trying to get some of the stuff overturned. Uh, so everything was done with little baby steps. And when I conceived of it, first of all, Blade's mother is a hooker, uh, that would have never been permitted. By the time I finally did it, I was amazed that it actually passed. I assumed it couldn't because nobody had ever done anything like that before. Uh, but in the Warren magazines, which were slightly more more adult, they were not censored by the Comics Code because they were black and white magazines rather than a 15 cent, 20 cent, whatever the price of a comic book, wa uh, comic book was, color comic. Uh, that quote really, again, sometimes I... As you could probably tell, I'm sorry, but through every deposition I've done, uh, I'm not a good speaker. I tend to talk sometimes in sound bites with interviews, hoping that something will get through. And that was really referring to, that's what I thought, well, don't I, why don't I put this character in there? I couldn't, I wouldn't have come up with it then. So it had nothing to do with the creation of Blade or Deacon Frost, that statement in the interview that was reported. No, no. 
When you are introduced to reporters or people in the trade or press, is there a persona you try to project? Yes, unfortunately. I'm now sorry I do. A lot of comic book people. Fleischer. Objection, Your Honor. I think the witness answered the question, which I thought was a yes or no question, and now he's answering a question I don't know what he's answering. Can we have a question? Dilberto. I will ask the question, what persona do you portray? When I was growing up reading comic books, or actually when I was a little bit older, when Stan Lee was writing, say, the Marvel bullpen pages, Stan would have this self-effacing, ah, shucks, type of attitude. You know, just one of the guys. Stan is probably the most gregarious, outward, fun-type character that you could possibly meet. And I do mean character. He's a wonderfully outrageous person and very talented. Stan created a persona of being humble, of being... <laughs> of being everything else is phenomenal everybody else is brilliant i'm just you know ah shucks type of thing and i had been doing that in my fanzines as well if you read some of the editorials and stories of suspense uh there was a werewolf character introduced in those pages he would talk about oh that idiot wolfman who who edits the magazine things like that i'm writing that uh you move on now i'm over there working at marvel and at that point, there was a lot of, I guess, people who were, what I like to say, stealing from movies. They would steal the plots of whatever the current movie was. Uh, it would be in there, and I was trying to get away from that. I was, tr I was trying now to look more erudite. Uh, it sounds really silly, but I was going, quote, I'm only someone who reads comic books. Uh, oh, I'm only someone who reads books, end quote. And I was trying to do that. So I was, you know... I don't know much of this other stuff. It was the same type of thing where I was trying to indicate my knowledge, which is true. It comes from Bradbury, comes from Rich Robert Block, comes from Richard Matheson. The actual material on Dracula came from Bram Stoker. It came from histories that I read uh, at that point at the same time because there were stories of an actual living person named Vlad Tepes. Uh, so I was trying to present the sort of a look uh, that sort of a feel because frankly I've seen everyone else do it and that was mine uh, to make it look like I wasn't stealing from movies which I wasn't uh, because I wasn't the biggest movie fan of that sort of material in the world I'd like to have you look at exhibit 570 actually I'd like to mark 570 571 and 572 it's the first issue of Conan the Barbarian and 572 is the first issue of Savage Tales magazine featuring Conan the Barbarian and both of these are Marvel publications? Yes, they were. Do you know when these were published? Exhibit 570 has a cover date of 1970, October 70. It was published sometime in 1970. Savage Tales says May 71, probably early 1971. Do you know who owns the character Conan the Barbarian? Conan Enterprises, I think the name is. Do you know if Marvel owned that character in 1970? They didn't, didn't own it then. They don't own it now. I'd like you to refer to the Indicia page of Exhibit 570 as Control Number 145. Do you see where it says Copyright 1970 by Magazine Management Company, Inc.? Yes, it's on the second line. And Marvel Comics Group? And Marvel Comics Group, right, which is, of course, wrong. It wasn't copyrighted by them. I mean, it wasn't owned by them. What does this Indicia show you based on your knowledge of Conan the Barbarian, the ownership of that character? Conan was a popular series of novels at the time. Conan was created, I believe, in the 1930s, early 1940s. It was published again in paperback form in the 60s. It became incredibly popular in the 60s. None of this had to do with Marvel. Marvel published the comic book version of it starting, I guess, in, in late, uh, in early 1960, late 1969, early 1970, depending upon when it actually came out. And I think it shows that Marvel puts a copyright of their name on products that they don't own. Well, isn't this similar to your fanzine where you gave examples of you filed the copyright notices for issues number six and number nine of Super Adventures and you were protecting the entire magazine but not claiming rights to characters you didn't own? It's not, it's not the alleged owner. Uh, certainly, I believe that's the same type of thing where it would be taken out in one person's name or one company's name but it's the individual people who still own it. As I said, there was a lot of artwork in this, and there were a lot of characters that existed outside of my fanzines that I could not claim ownership of. This was a protection for the book.
I'd like to mark for identification Exhibit 582. Can you identify that? I never read this, but it's Blade. Uh, I can't find an indicia. Wait a sec. Uh, yes, I see it now. It's Blade 1, November 1998. And yes, uh, that's what it is. And it's obviously something taking usage of the movie because it's the same logo from the movie, I believe. Uh, I could be wrong. Is this a reissue of the first issue of Blade in which Blade appeared? Oh, no, no. This is a brand new story written by Don McGregor, uh, drawn by Brian Hagen. The Indicia says November 1998. So this was published after your lawsuit had already been filed. Wolfman indicates that he does. Do you notice in Indicia, it says Blade with an R in a circle. Do you see that? Yes, I do. Do you also see the last sentence where it says, Blade, including all prominent character featured in this issue and the distinctive likenesses thereof, is a trademark of Marvel Comics, Inc.? Yes, I do. Had you ever seen language like that during the 1970s when you were writing Tomb of Dracula? Uh, there never was any. Absolutely what wasn't any. There wasn't a registered mark ever on Blade during the entire time. There wasn't a TM then. There wasn't... No, this did not exist. Is November 1998 the first time you've seen a claim by Marvel to these characters and trademarks? I have to be honest, uh, I've never seen this book uh, really until now. So this is the first claim I, I've known that I've actually made in the books themselves. Your Honor, at this time I'd like to move into evidence the exhibits previously identified by Wolfman. Court, all right, is this going to complete your direct? Yes, I have no further questions at this time of this witness. Court, all right cross-examination. Are we going to switch? Can I one more time use the restroom? All right, five minute break. Good place to leave it. Perfect. Jimmy, uh, this made me think about uh, whenever I put books together, my like my first solo books, um, I think it was on, on Hip Hop Family Tree, I hand lettered the Indicias and you asked the publisher because there's ISBN numbers they have to generate. There's uh, the they have to decide which country or print facility they're going to use and that information. I wonder if that's just just done in tradition or if there's like some requirement for that to be in there. But there are things that they need to generate. They send you the indicia, and I think for Hip Hop Family Tree One, the indicia said like copyright Fantagraphics, and I was like, it doesn't feel right to me. Like what is that? You know, like I, I did this work, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and they described that it was a copyright of like that, that edition. You can't take that exact. I can't take those files and make that exact book with all the, the editing that they did. And, and you know, they, they put their hand on it. Uh, so that so that's what that is. But I still had it changed. Uh, be, and I noticed in Fantagraphics books that Levin Rockets would say copyright uh uh, Fantagraphics, but stuff like Eight Ball wouldn't, and some other things. Like so, so it made me feel like those creators spoke up. Like not saying that Fantagraphics owns Love and Rockets or anything like that, but it's purely like that specific thing. And that's sort of what Wolfman's talking about. With you know, you publish a thing, you, you copyright it, and you sort of own like this printing, this object. But you know, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's, it's the rights to reproduce or or to produce that version yeah um you know and to protect it from being like you know i can't go out and, and and print photocopy this or you know scan it and print my own edition of it right uh, because it's copyright fanographics even though a lot of this stuff you know like this court transcript they don't own the court transcript right um what they own is sort of like the packaging of this uh, this version right um yeah so you know and the registered thing is a whole nother thing like trademark yeah. is a certain thing um, the registered, I don't, I actually don't have any experience with that registered R. Yeah. So I'm not sure what that covers. Uh, I don't know when that became a major part of, you know, a comic book or a comic book character. Yeah. Uh, it may not even be a major part. It may be a part that some companies use. I don't know, but it's not something I'm familiar with. There are levels for sure, right? Like there are characters that it'll, it'll be like Spider-Man, trademark and copyright, registered, blah, blah, blah. But then it might be like. Moon Knight, well, in the past, Moon yeah, Knight. Like, I bet all that stuff is is every level of protection they have that exists. They now. have that stuff buttoned <laughs> up, man. Uh, just another funny uh, Hip Hop Family Tree One story was, um, you know, we printed that stuff in China, and I didn't get a copy. Like before, I got my comp copies, and before Fanta got any copies, 
when I used to look at Twitter, there um, were dudes showing off copies of Hip Hop Family Tree, guys on business in Shanghai who are like, at Ed Fisk, or, dude, book looks awesome, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and none of us got our copies yet. I sent that off to Gary. Gary's like, what the fuck, man? Hits up the print house. And uh, an investigation was done, supposedly, right? Like, like we're, we're talking about the furthest point on the globe that one can get. Jim Shooter going upstairs. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, Gary, Gary did his due diligence. Well, you know, we're losing money. Um, and what the print facility did, what they do is they don't just like have paper on like in the basement or something that they, they have to order it. Mm-hmm. So there's like math formulas created, like X amount of paper creates X unit of books. We bought X amount of paper, generated X amount copies of books. What is left over here? What is missing? And, and it turned out that like somebody ran off about 500 extra copies and they were being distributed like within a radius of um the print house and it just so happens that it was is like a metropolitan area or something like this where 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 businessmen from america have to go do things man that's interesting i didn't know that back the the backstory of like the extra 500 you know, copies being produced or whatever. That's, yeah, they, uh, they said they were faulty copies or something like that, but the, the guy wasn't complaining that his copy was busted. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you, you're always going to overprint. I don't know if you do 500, if you do 50 or whatever, just because there are damages or things that go wrong, and it's a lot more expensive if you missed the number that was ordered and have to set the presses up and do it again. So, you know, you're always going to overprint yeah. to some extent. Yeah, yeah. You don't want to print to, print to order. Uh, we, we did a piece about self-publishing where Brian Polito's talking about, like, if, if you believe in yourself, you want to invest in yourself, and you imagine that you will build a readership, overprint a little bit. We did sell out on day one. And then when we got our next printing, we sold out on, like, day two. And now we're in eight printings. But who's counting? I think it's nine, really. <laughs> <laughs> do you have to uh re, re, re adjust that in dca to be like eight ninth? i think i think they handle that you know just copy paste uh i have enough letters on uh the that's NDCA. why they would always do like you'd see one through ten yeah that's why so you could just black out on the film like whatever number and yeah and they, the they do do the blackouts i think but it's also indicated in, in the text which makes makes me very happy I, uh, I'm excited to get into cross-examination. Yeah, dude. It's already spicy whenever we have these interjections by the rival attorneys trying to get things overturned and stuff. And it still feels to me like, where's the swerve? This seems like Wolfman is in the clear so far. Like, what what, what are we going to find out here uh, yeah. you know, as this goes forward? Like, why does this not work for him? Yeah, that, like, that's a, that's the thing, man. Like, I believe everybody. So, like, I'm fully on his side. And then, uh, it, and with the case that he presented, with the Sabre stuff, that's a revelation. You know, that's cool. Same uh, with Conan. So, yeah, yeah, setting it up with the idea with, you know, Conan and, like, these other kinds of properties. But then when he's editor-in-chief at, at Marvel, when, when the Howard Duck stuff is going on and, and whatever... Uh, and Steve Gerber, like, was in um, the fan press and stuff way before the movie, saying things like, "If like, I got paid less than somebody who's selling a pristine copy of the first appearance of Howard the Duck." Like, he was talking that kind of shit mm-hmm. before uh, the movie was was a thing by by years, and that's like an indicator of wanting more. A percentage or something like that you know like fight, fighting for that kind of advocacy There's, i feel such a debt to these guys absolutely man because they, they really did advance it you know like one of the things i'd like us to do at some point is read that creator's bill of rights yeah that uh that, that all those guys put together in the in the 80s because you you just take it for granted you know like whenever the movie shows up in this in this uh transcript and it's like i didn't didn't even hear about this you right. know like like he's seeing it clearly as like i've just giving you the rights to do the comic book with these characters but they're my characters it's like you don't have the right to make movies in in japan or anywhere else with them (laughs) um it's you know like that's kind of that creator bill of rights you know it's like here's a list of everything that comes with the thing you created now what are you giving up whenever you do 
enter into some kind of contract with the publishing company. Right. Um, you know, each of those rights is worth something, or at least it it's something that should be accounted for legally, uh, you know, that you sign off on or, or negotiate for. So it's interesting to trace that part to me, you know, sure. that evolution of... Uh, of a lot of what we take for granted today you know if you're if you're 20 making comics today like you have a lot more you know you're where the rights negotiation starts is so much further ahead than than what we uh you know what what, what the people we looked up to had like they had nothing almost yeah for and sure had to fight for every inch this is uh you know this just furthers and deepens our comic book education in the administrative capacity and just like pro wrestling it's one of those vocations that people grow up with like a calling for and a passion for and will forego certain things like there there will never be a union because there will always be people who are very excited to draw some pages for it's the fan it's the fan piece and it's such a strange piece again parallels with wrestling you yeah know, it's such a strange piece of like you want to do it so bad, you'll do it for free, right? And but you let then you, you let them you know don't, you don't get the union if uh, if there's somebody that's waiting there and willing to do it for free. Yeah, a lot of scabs out there. Hey, I have a quick wrestling bit. Yes, um, Scott Hall passed away this past ten, week. Ten uh, bell salute, rest in peace. But uh, I, you know, so you get to hear whenever these guys pass, you get to hear lots of their peers telling stories. And uh, Jeff Jarrett was telling a story about when he came to WWF. Scott Hall, Razor Ramon at the time. And smart guy. Everybody always says, you know, Scott Hall, great head for the business. And so Jeff Jarrett was giving examples of stuff Scott Hall taught him. And he said, like, at the time, TV matches were squash matches. Right. You know, it would just be Razor Ramon crushing some some dude you never heard of. Ramon said, you don't just run through these guys and you don't just do your move set one move after another. He was like, you want to get in there and grab a hold like a headlock. And the reason you do it is the announcers then can tell, can build you up. Instead of just describing the action and what's going on, they can kind of like build your character. And I love these little details. Like that's the storytelling pieces where it's like those announcers aren't there for nothing. Right. Like how do you use them as part of the story that you're trying to tell? I love that stuff. Yeah. Such a small detail. I wonder if Oliver Stone uh, came after uh, Razor Ramon for copyright infringement and stuff with some of his character work. <laughs> Boy, that's the truth, right? <laughs> Where's the gimmick lawyer? <laughs> uh, listen, man, cross-examination next time, dude. You good to go? Yes. Kayfabers, like, follow, subscribe to the YouTube channel. Hit the bell. We'll notify you when new vids are available. What is out there, Jimmy? Hulk Grand Design, man. But probably the time you see this video, it'll be the week of Hulk Grand Design Monster number one release in, the, in your local comic shop. Get to that comic shop and ask for a copy. Um, probably too late to pre-order them now. But uh, definitely seek out Hulk Grand Design Monster number one this week or anytime after you see this video. And uh, join me on Patreon.com slash Jim Rug where you can see some of the behind the scenes on that as well as a lot of my original art and other comics. Red Room Trigger Warnings issue number one is out on the stands as we speak. Murder on the Dark Web for Fun and Profit is the name of the game in the Red Room universe. Banned in 25 countries and about a half dozen comic shops around the country, man. Get your hands on these comics because they will still order them for you. They will put them on your pull list. They will be happy to make money on uh, Red Room Trigger Warnings. You just got to let the store know and hit, it, hit up Fanographics directly. If you uh, want to get your hands on this and you don't have a good shop uh, nearby. Also, you can read these comics on Patreon at this moment. Hit up patreon.com slash edpiscor. Three bucks will get you the archive there. Over 200 pages worth of Red Room comics up there as we speak. And I put up new strips every Tuesday. Uh, you can get to all these links to get Red Room comics in my link tree in the description below this video. Subscribe to the Cartoonist Kayfabe newsletter, also at the links below this video. And you can find Cartoonist Kayfabe t-shirts and merchandise at the links below this video. That's another great way to support the Cartoonist Kayfabe channel. Jimmy, given the marching orders, we'll be on our way. Make more comics.